Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Bobby, it's good to be with you again. The last time we connected on a podcast on the Zoom, we uh, you were just about ready to announce your candidacy. And now, and now you're in the midst of running your campaign, going through all the uh, different strategies you have of connecting with these different podcasts and congratulations on your successes and making hitting some of the major platforms. seems like you're really making a dent. Are you pleased with your results so far? Yeah. I mean, um, we're getting tremendous traction and, uh, you know, my, um, the polling shows as, as I think, you know, my favorability ratings better than any other candidate. Um, so, you know, there's still, there's a lot of challenges and, you know, we need to get through the uh, the barrier of the DNC and the Democratic Party, but I'm very, very happy with the way things have gone up to now. Okay, great. So, you know, we're, as a country, we're facing a constitutional crisis. Our elected officials and the government, they're actively working to censor, silence, and uh, even smear people like yourself who disagree with them. So I'm wondering if you were surprised to find emails from the Biden administration actively working to censor you on only their second day in office. Yeah, you know, Judge Doty's decision was was this this very, very um, alarming, I would say, troubling chronology that shows that the Biden administration began detailing these, you know, these... uh, uh, these emails that have now come to light during the discovery process in Missouri versus Biden. And that that case, uh, Joe, was brought by two attorney generals, by the Louisiana attorney general and by the Missouri attorney general. And uh, and we then, uh, you know, I had a separate case against President Biden uh, called Kennedy versus Biden. And the judge then incorporated our case into Missouri versus Biden. Judge Doty's decision came down about six weeks ago now. It's a 155-page decision, and it it, uh, details this very troubling chronicle of the Biden administration coming into office 37 hours after President Biden took the oath of office. Uh, The White House was contacting Twitter and other social media sites urging them to actually threatening them with retaliation if they did not remove me from uh, their platforms. And they were doing that. They, you know, they soon after that, they started going after many other people, including you and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, many of the other people who were, who were uh, criticizing uh, some of the COVID lockdowns and some of the uh, countermeasures at the public health agencies that the White House had implemented. And, you know, it's disturbing. They weren't only censoring medical information and they, you know, they called, they had to make up, uh, they had to make up a new word because so many of us um, were putting up information that 
they couldn't actually call misinformation. But in fact, Facebook and Twitter pushed back and said, you know, this isn't this is actually true what these guys are saying. They can't they couldn't call it misinformation or disinformation. So they invented a new word called malinformation. And that word means denotes uh, statements that are true, but nevertheless inconvenient for the White House or the government. And they weren't just censoring statements about COVID policies, COVID countermeasures. They were they began soon after that began they began censoring critics of the of the Ukraine war. Um, they began, in fact, in one instance, they were censoring the statements, a satire about President Biden and his wife. And so it's really, uh, you know, it's something that the the, the U.S. government, I, you know, should be this should be shocking to every person, regardless of your political party. The U.S. government should not be using its power to force publishers to silence its its opponents or its critics or its adversaries or people who question government policies. That's why we have the First Amendment. And the, the threat that they were, that the government, that the White House was applying was that if the, if the, uh, if the social media sites did not comply and that did not obey the orders to censor us, that the White House would work at uh, removing their Section 230 immunity. That's Section 230 of the Communications Act. And that immunity is absolutely uh, critical to the to the uh, business survival of these companies. What it does is it gives them, it gives social media platforms um, immunity from defamation lawsuits. In, in other words, if you, uh, if you were to, Publish a defamatory statement about me in the New York Times. That was not true. That was damaging to me. I could sue you individually, but I could also sue the New York Times. And so the New York Times, every article that goes up on the New York Times, there are lawyers who review that article for potentially defamatory statements. And um, and but the social media sites, if they had to hire a lawyer to look at every post, they would be out of business overnight. And so Congress gave them this extraordinary power that, you know, they can publish defamatory material on their site. And I can sue the guy who wrote that material, but I can't sue Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook or Twitter. And um Mark Zuckerberg has described the Section 230 immunity as existential. In other words, um, Facebook could not exist without that. Well, the White House was threatening to withdraw that. In other words, we will destroy your company if you do not censor our critics. And that is, uh, you know, that that stepped over a lot of boundaries that I cannot think of at any time in American history uh, of another example of just a direct attack on the First Amendment of our Constitution. Well, thank you for answering that. And I think the justification for many of these actions was a result of the front group for the global cabal called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, who released a report that uh, stated the the disinformation dozen was responsible for two thirds of the dis, dis, disinformation. 
now that the Republicans are in control of con- Congress, they've been able to subpoena this group, and it's going to likely reveal the illegal nature of how they operated. So we got the Department of Homeland Security using this report in cooperation with the FBI and CIA to name us as domestic threat actors. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, the whole thing is very sketchy. Um, first of all, you know, the, the group Center for Countering Digital Hate is actually a hate group by by every definition. It uh, It's a group and it, it, it's also uh, foreign funded. It's it's funded by dark money, mm-hmm. uh, but it's all foreign. And it, um, it, it, it probably was it was started by high level officials um, in the British government uh, initiated it, um, who probably almost certainly have have ties to the British intelligence agencies. Uh, and so and they um, those so the, the money was coming through the you know, it, it's definitely foreign money. It's probably foreign government money or um, uh, you know, money that was instigated by uh, by government pressure. And and that is another kind of interesting thing. And then the people who run the organization are very, very sketchy individuals. Um, who've been, you know, skirting the law for a long time and and uh, involved with a lot of nefarious activities, uh, but uh, the uh, it's interesting because you know that a lot of people have been concerned in this country, and particularly high level officials in the Democratic Party have been concerned about Russian interference with American elections. Well, here you have a foreign government, you know, directly censoring critics of the administration and um, the and the administration admittedly taking its cues from a foreign government that wanted to censor uh, people. So it, it's not, you know, there's a lot of ironies here and a, a lot of disturbing paradoxes. Um, and, uh, you know, I look forward to, I think Jim Jordan is, has a committee that's now investigating. Incidentally, they were saying, I'm, you know, you're a member of this, of the, what they call the disinformation dozen. And I, I think you are the number one member and I may be the number two member right. of that August group. But, uh, <laughs> the, you know, they're really, if you look at the people in that group, they're all people who are essentially professional truth tellers. They're people who have been, you know, are critics of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but people who are pretty rigorous about fact checking and about citing and sourcing their materials. So they're not disinformation. They're they're literally information providers and much more reliable than the mainstream media. Uh, but uh, this Center for Countering Digital Hate said that what it was it sixty five or seventy five percent of the misinformation about vaccines on the internet comes through these twelve voices. Um, but when uh, when Facebook actually applied its algorithms to that statement, what they found was that I think it was less than, you know, 0. 0.75, 0.75, so hundreds and hundreds of times less. Um, that if you, even if you, if you assume that everything that all of us said was misinformation, 
um, and added it all up, it is a tiny, tiny sliver of a fraction of the uh, of the you know the vaccine information that's on the that's on uh, those internet sites. Oh, even Facebook said this is just a lie, and they publicly said that. But nevertheless, Congress applied. Uh, you know, Congress treated it as if it were true, and the mainstream media treated it as it were true. And you and I have been libeled, I would say, tens of thousands of times across the media globally because of the, the false statements of this group. Yeah, so we'll see what com- what happens from this, it'll, but it'll be really interesting to see how it unfolds. Now, you've been in the media quite a bit recently for your request to the Biden administration for uh, Secret Service protection, which you appear to qualify, but uh, Biden administration is denying you. So I found this p- somewhat curious because a Secret Service is part of the Department of Homeland Security and they work with the CIA and the FBI. And knowing the history with your father and uncle, I'm just wondering how much you can really trust the Secret Service with your protection. Well, you know, when we were, Joe, when we dealt with the Secret Service, my, I had, a, you know, a, 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 a private security firm, which is Gavin DeBecker says he is, which is one of the leading security firms in the country that has been providing me some protection. And they also um, made the application to the Secret Service. They, they um they advised the, uh, the various federal enforcement agencies on uh, on personal security issues. Gavin DeBecker, who, who is the uh, who owns the company, is the CEO of the company, is is probably the world's foremost expert on um, personal security. He's written multiple books and multiple bestsellers, including The Gift of Fear. He's written analysis of every public assassination in in the history of the world, uh, the physics of each of those, and you know that the information that he has put together is used by every um, enforcement agency in the federal government, and um, he, he put together or they that group put together a sixty five page report detailing the unique threats to me, um, historic threats and then, you know, uh, contemporary death threats. I had a a death threat uh, two weeks ago that um, that impeded one of our uh, it was was apparently um, it it appears to have been calculated to try to shut down one of my uh, rallies in, in Charleston, South Carolina. I was received by the venue right before I spoke there, and uh, and some of the employees of the venue then, uh, you know, uh, felt very uncomfortable working at the event because of, for fear. And I uh, about a I don't know three weeks ago or a month maybe now I had a a mentally ill person come to my home. I get to the third floor. I get I have uh, stalkers and. You know uh, that I deal with all, on an everyday basis, literally every single day, and um, and then I get death threats uh, quite often. So, um, and because of my family history, all of this was part of this sixty-five page addenda that was 
uh, sent to the Secret Service. And when we dealt with the, when DeBecker dealt with the Secret Service, he described them as incredibly cooperative, as incredibly encouraging. Um, he, they seemed to believe that I was entitled to the protection and that I would have it. And they told him that uh, they that we would get a visit, a preliminary visit within ten to fourteen days. Uh, that Cheryl and I would, and that they 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 believe that the uh, the application should be approved. Now, here's how it works: after my father's assassination, uh, Congress passed a law that all political uh, uh, not the, that the major um, candidates for political parties, and they have to hit a threshold. I think it's fifteen percent uh, for a month, which I surpassed for a long, you know, but by far, um, that they're in that they are um, entitled to Secret Service protection in 120 days before the general election. Um, however, the president has the discretion to give it to people at any time. And not just presidential candidates. John Bolton, who retired many years ago from the government, continues to have Secret Service protection. Many, many other people do. Uh, my uncle was given Secret Service protection for, I think, uh, almost 500 days prior to the election, even when he was not even a candidate. And he was given that protection by President Carter, who, with whom you know he had a, a, a very uh, adversarial relationship, and he ended up you know, running against President Carter, and they didn't like each other. But President Carter, um, you know, was a classy person and did what he should should have done, which is to provide Teddy with protection. Um, Barack Obama, I think, got it 500 days early. Shirley Chisholm, Jesse Jackson got it early. John McCain was offered it early. Uh, I think there, there's probably about 20 or 30 candidates who have been offered it early in recent history. And there's, as far as we've been able to tell, there has never been a candidate uh, who applied for it for Secret Service protection to whom it was denied. I am the first. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it was an historical uh, event and it was uh, it was clearly a political choice. It was not based upon a threat assessment. It was clearly bought based upon um, a political calculation. And that you know, I think that that is uh, that's disturbing. Thank you for that. Um, I want to shift back now to the progressive move towards totalitarianism. Uh, and especially implemented not only from the social media, but the now the financial institutions. And I want to thank you for passing out our tweet a few weeks ago that announced that uh, Chase Bank debanked us. So this seems to uh, be an evolving uh, move that they're doing now. And they're it seems to be the precursor for movement into social credit scores like they have in China, more financial uh, censorship. So, uh, what would you do to bring prevent more people from succumbing to being debanked, which can only lead to fin tighter financial controls? Yeah, I mean, as president, I I will end this practice by the banks. I will uh, make it clear that banks who 
who, you know, that to cut off all federal benefits and federal contact with banks that are uh, that are punishing people for political beliefs, that are denying them access to uh, institutional banking services because of their political beliefs or because of their political statements. It's wrong. And it's, uh, you know, it is, it's the, it's kind of, it's kind of the ultimate weapon of totalitarian regimes. We saw this happen in Toronto with the truckers when they, you know, during those protests, the truckers protest in Canada during COVID was a peaceful protest. It was, you know, if you look at the the, the videos of it, it was like Woodstock. Um, there was clearly false flag events going on during that protest where government, uh, you know, where somebody was trying to uh, frame the truckers, you know, by they, they had a man who was in a baklava, you know, with military boots on who was carrying a uh, um, a Confederate flag among them and the truckers ran them out. And, they, you know, the truckers were a very diverse group. There was blacks, whites, Asians, everybody in there. It was very peaceful, kind of a joyous celebration. And, they, you know, they were they had garbage pickup crews. They, they were taking care of people who, who didn't have enough to eat. It, it was a, it was really this extraordinary um, demonstration of community and uh, and social responsibility. And they were in Ottawa to protest uh, the the the, uh, the uh, removal of rights that in the United States we take for advantage, I mean, take for granted, um, including the rights of, to petition your government, the rights of assembly, you know, the rights of uh, to criticize your government. And the government of Canada under the Trudeau regime, um, I used surveillance techniques, including facial recognition systems and um, and other techniques to to capture the the license plates of the truck to identify their owners and then to freeze all their bank accounts. And so the, all the leaders and the participants in the protest all woke up one day and their bank accounts had been frozen. These are people who had never, who had not violated the law. They weren't charged with violating the law. They were never convicted. And yet suddenly they found themselves in a position where they could not pay their bills. They couldn't buy gasoline. Their credit cards didn't work. Uh, They couldn't feed their children. I talked to one trucker who was, uh, who was in criminal trouble because he couldn't pay his alimony. They couldn't pay their mortgages and they couldn't pay their rent. And so if you have a government, it, it occurred to me then that uh, transactional freedom is as important as freedom of expression. Because if you have a government that can essentially starve you to death and put you out of your home, you you, you know you, you can easily make an entire society a slave society if you have that power over them. And you're right. In, in China, you know, they have not only, you know, they've used central bank digital currencies um, and pro, and made them programmable so that you, um, so that if you if your social credit score drops below a certain number, for, for example, if you're seen by a fa- facial recognition camera, 
during a mask, mandatory mask day, and your mask is below your nose or something like that, then you lose social credit score uh, um, points. And you then, if you drop below a certain uh, point average, and then uh, the government can shut off your money. And they it's programmable. So they may say to you, well, we're going to make it so your credit cards will only work at grocery stores within a certain um, periphery or diameter, you know, uh, from your house. And uh, but they're not going to work for so that you are not, we're not going to let you buy gasoline. We're essentially putting you under house arrest. You're not going to be able to buy an airplane ticket. You're not going to be able to buy any luxury items or anything other than maybe food. And um and if the government has the power to do that to you, then it uh, it really has ultimate power over all of us. And so, and and that's one of the things that I've been fighting against the issuance by the United States, which is now moving toward a central bank digital currency to try to get a current to eliminate um, paper dollars. And in in that case, every transaction that you make. You know, if you buy a porn magazine, if you buy alcohol, whatever you do, the government is going to know about it, and people, and you will be subject to blackmail or subject to pressure. Um, and uh, and it's it's really a, it's a calamity for human rights and for civil rights. And, and so, you know, my as president, I will end the. Uh, you know, the efforts to move toward a central bank digital currency. I'll do everything I can uh, to maintain the, the the paper cash as as uh, as legal tender in this country and to make sure that we're committed to doing that uh, forever. Um, and uh, and that it's part of our, our base that Americans know how basic it is to their rights. Uh, and then, you know, there's other alternatives like Bitcoin, which give you even a, you know, a better protection than cash. Um, and, you know, they also get it also gives you protection from inflation and, uh, you know, and, and, and all of the other hazards that come along with fiat currencies. Have you ever considered integrating the state banking system into the equation? Now, currently in the United States, we only got one state that integrates that, and that's North Dakota. But it seems like a really novel workaround for these gigantic, nefarious global financial institutions. But what are you saying? A state banking system where they they essentially don't create debt. They they loan it out to people and they pay it. They're, they're, you're, it, it bypasses the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I mean that. That's one. I, you know, one of my objectives when I get in there is to um, is to get the Federal Reserve under control to make sure that we now, you know, we restore sovereignty in the American people over our money supply. That we uh, that we have transparency. There's a lot of different options that we're looking at that right now. You know, that I'm involved looking at. We're talking about them with. Uh, leading economists around the around the country, you know, people like David Stockman, like Jeffrey Sachs, like Jeff Werner, many, many, many other experts in that area to try to uh, figure out. A lot of people have very, really good ideas about how to get the Fed under control. And I, we're going to do something. We're going to do something about it. 
Um, I just don't know exactly what we're going to do. And that, you know, what you offer there is an interesting option um, that, you know, I need to run by our, our, our economics team and put in the mix. Yeah, Ellen Brown has done a lot of work on that. She's actually written books on it. So I can connect you if you're interested. Um, so I want to congratulate you also for Merrill Nass's tremendous work on the World Health Organization's plan on the One Health Plan to essentially strip us of our sovereignty and, and give them complete control of not only assessing if a pandemic is going to happen, but what needs to be done so they have total authority over, over it. And Bill Gates, of course, is behind this, and he's the largest um, funder of the World Health Organization through himself and Gavi. Um, So uh, I'm wondering if it's time for all of us to demand less taxes and less support for the federal and global governments and more individual empowerment. Well, I am not going to raise taxes. I I, am. You know, I'll probably shuffle the tax burden around. Uh, you know, I, I'll probably bring back the, um, uh, the you know child tax credit and uh, and some of these other innovations that um, that favor uh, the you know the small business and the middle class and and uh, child care, etc. Um, but. Uh, I mean, I, I think the big issue that you and I completely agree on is sovereignty, that we need local sovereignty, that, you know, uh, we need to move away from centralized control and centralized, and particularly any control uh, institutions that, like the WHO that are not subject to, you know, uh, to U.S. control. Uh, it's, that, it's an insane idea. And as you said, Bill Gates has taken over control of WHO and um, it's become his, uh, you know, his vessel for, you know, what he calls philanthropic capitalism, which is a way of making a lot of money um, by, uh, by controlling these international institutions that make public health policy. And, uh, you know, for example, to get the WHO to, which funds most of the African health departments to use its power and leverage over those departments to mandate vaccines for the children in those countries. Um, and those uh, vaccines are uh, are made almost invariably by companies in which Gates has a, a, a private financial interest or which his foundation has a private financial interest. It was the same thing that he did with the Green Revolution in Africa uh, he got African countries uh, to switch from traditional agriculture that has been around for 20,000 generations from sorghum and barley and cassava and, uh, you know, and, and, and Latin America, yucca and, uh, and uh, plantains, et cetera, and switch it to uh, GMO monocultures and you know with this idea that oh, this is part of globalization that will bring big corporations in who will buy your products give you cash and lift everybody's standard of living up that was the promise but it exactly the opposite happened gates did bring in the corporations that he you know owns coca-cola to buy the corn syrup and um 
a Kraft cheese and McDonald's, which, you know, he and, and uh, he, you know, he was by default one of the biggest shareholders and all, and Monsanto and Cargill and all these other corporations to build the infrastructure for the, these GMO products to build the supply chain and then create those products and sell them to U.S. corporations. And it's been an absolute calamity for the people of Africa. And I think there's 30 million additional people who have become food insecure as a direct result of the of Gates's Green Revolution. And uh, But Gates and his companies have made a killing on it, literally a killing. And, um, and so that he's applied the same thing to uh you know microsoft word you know by giving it away with his you know with his core curriculum to schools and making the you know and, and training a generation of children uh who will be to be future microsoft customers well, in each uh, philanthropical effort that he makes there's always at the end of it some um you know some money making scheme uh for gates and his foundation Okay, so closing things up, I um, want to uh, mention that we have a wide spectrum of people on our site with different varieties of political opinions, including those who are some pretty hardcore conservative Repu Republicans. But there's just simply no question that if you have any critical thinking skills left, that you're going to want Bobby to be the Democratic nominee. I mean, there, there's no other rational candidate. He's smart. He's honest. He's incredibly healthy. He works hard. And he's aligned with many preventive strategies that can help everyone in this country take control of your health. So along those lines, uh, a few weeks ago, you had a viral video uh, that the world saw do, you doing push-ups, and it went went widespread. So uh, with all of these questions, every and actually, I think, one of your interviews with Russell Brand, he challenged you to a, a push, a pull-up contest, I believe. Yeah, I don't know if you participated in that. I regret that. No, that we're almost. Uh, we, he had to raise a certain amount of money, and then I yeah. said I would do it. So, okay, we're well, about to. I, I think we're almost there. Well, good. So, think, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, because you know, it, it's questionable if Biden is does have enough mental fitness to be president. I think it's important to know that most Americans know you're in good shape. So uh, I think we could do something similar. We're both 69 years old, so we're the same age. And uh, we could do something similar to Russell, but not copy him with pull-ups. We'll do something a little different and just do simple arm wrestling. So if we agree to to uh raise two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to support your campaign you're gonna arm wrestle me is that true yeah but i let me ask you just something honestly are you a ringer in this area is this something that you've done before well i've done it once but i do train quite a bit and i do a special type of physical training that involves blood flow restriction training called katsu so it trains a type 2 muscle fibers so my, my muscle fibers are really well trained for this type of event okay so i i there's a very good chance i'm gonna lose this all right very good <laughs> i beat people up one time i did it i beat a guy that was about 30 years younger than me and much more muscular so <laughs>
Uh, well, you know, I admire you a lot, Joe, because you've been giving people um, health advice for many, many years and, and uh, health products, many of which I use. I use your liposomal C every day and a lot of other um, of your uh, of your vitamins. And, you know, you are obviously uh, you're one of these guys who gives medical advice, but you also live it. You're you're uh, you're a very, very healthy guy. And I think that that's, you know, that's good for all of us. We, you know, one of the things that I'm going to do when I get in the White House is to re, um, rejuvenate my my uncle's presidential council on, on physical fitness. And I remember that. Oh, I was, I was in grade school. It was maybe such high, a school. Huge thing. high school. Yeah. It was a really big thing when we were young. And it was really, it was wonderful for, and if you look at the old films, which are out there of, you know, of the way the kids looked back then and, the, you know, the performance that they were doing. It's almost uh, it's almost unbelievable how good a shape they were in compared to, you know, today's kids. And we now have the sickest children in the world. We have the highest chronic disease burden of any country in the world. And our kids are, you know, at least 54 percent, probably over 60 percent have lifetime chronic diseases. And, you know, one of the ways to deal with that is to uh, focus on your physical health and uh, your diet. And um, and these are things that, you know, of course, the, the pharmaceutical industry and their captive regulators just want to use those. For them, it's a sick population is an economic boom. And, uh, and you know, we now have the highest health care costs per capita of any country in the world, $4.3 trillion, $3.7 trillion of that is for chronic disease. So, you know, 80 or 90%. And if we can get rid of, reduce those chronic disease rates, we reduce, we, we reduce our healthcare costs enormously. And I, I want to do that. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take that. Great. Yeah. That I remember when I, when, when I was in medical school, the healthcare costs nationally was less than two trillion now it's more it's double more than double so i'm glad glad you accepted my arm wrestling challenge so if you watching this want to see us arm wrestle you all you need to do is go to kennedy 24 k-e-n-n-e-d-y 24.com and you put a backslash and you type in arm a little hyphen and wrestle and you'll get a page and you can donate and if the donations reach this threshold we're going to arm wrestle all right. I look forward to it. You'll have to tell me those special exercises you do. That <laughs> I'll be happy to share that with you. I'll give you enough time to prepare for it. All right. Well, best of luck to you on the rest of your campaign. And, and hopefully uh, things will continue to go the right way. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. All right. Bye now.